Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The 14th chapter of Joshua. Certainly appreciate Dr. Jack Fiscus, my brother and friend, not only at Dawson Memorial, but at any place. And this church that I've loved, and this church that has loved me for over 20 years since we've been at Sanford, it's good to be home. I've been brooding over the 14th chapter of Joshua, so I'm going to um, run across the field and um, truncate and abbreviate some of my remarks. If you're interested, services, uh, the 825 and the 940 service, you'll, uh, you'll see me expanding on some of those uh, things that the Lord laid on my heart. But Joshua chapter 14, 6 through 14, 6 through 12. I want to talk about the blessedness of secondness. The blessedness of secondness. Hear these words from the Word. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb's son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Joshua and Caleb belong together. They are inextricably tied together, inseparable throughout Scripture, Joshua and Caleb. Both born in Egypt, both spies in the wilderness, forming a recognizance team to investigate the promised land, the land that God had already promised to Abraham many centuries before. Both of them were eyewitnesses of the great miracles of God, not only in Egypt, but also in the desert. Not just the opening up of the Red Sea and the superhighway form through it, but the baking of bread from heaven's kitchen for 40 long years. Both of them were statesmen. Both of them were men of great courage. They came up together, they suffered together. 
And yet when Moses died, Joshua 1, verse 1 and 2, God appointed Joshua as the leader. And Caleb had to learn to share in the ministry of secondness with a spirit that was one of complementarity and one that was positive and one which made a contribution to the growth of the children of Israel as they made their way to the promised land. I think this is important to us because all of us have been given a ministry of secondness. There's only one who's preeminent. There's only one who deserves first place, and that is Christ. Diotrephes in 3 John verse 9, love to be first. That's a very, very indicting comment. And God has called us to minister in areas that are shadowy, obscure, unknown, and yet we do it not so that we get credit, but so that God gets the glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Uh, to enjoy the blessedness of secondness, one has to learn, as I've already stated in the first two services, how to play the most difficult instrument in the sanctified Christian symphony. It's called second fiddle, playing second fiddle, or second anything. That's what Caleb had to do. Though he was just as qualified from what we're able to see, his resume was just as impressive. He served just as long as Joshua, and yet Joshua becomes the leader, and Caleb becomes the supporter of the leadership of Joshua. And he did it in such a way that it gave glory to God. Jesus knew how to play second fiddle. Look at him, if you will. The creator washing the feet of the creature. One who is ruler serves. And he says, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. The one who was exalted stooped down to the depths of humiliation only to be resurrected so that all of us fall prostrate at his feet and cast our crowns at his feet because only he deserves glory and adoration. He knew how to play second fiddle. He knew how to take whatever praise was given to him and take and reflect it to the point that it is given to God. Let your light so shine before human beings that they may see your good works, Matthew 5, 16, and give glory to the Father which is in heaven. If Christ played second fiddle, then how much more should we be willing to play second fiddle? Do you know what that's like to be the bridesmaid but never the bride? To be the best man but never the groom? Do you know what it's like to be second string do you know what it's like to never become the chairman or the director in any kind of ministry in the church? You're always playing second fiddle in some department and your name is not even on the roster. Don't worry about that. Hear this great word that we have even from the world because the world has to teach us this. Here is Sully Sullenberger. Here he is, Chelsea Sellenberger, flying U.S. Airways 
1549, January the 15th, 2009. Takes off from New York. Within a couple of minutes, he utters these words. Birds for a flock of Canadian geese fly into both of the engines, immobilizing both of them, leaving him with no power. But he's able to, in a very, very incredible way, fly the plane over the George Washington Bridge, 900 feet, just 900 feet above the bridge, land in the Hudson River. 156 people were in that plane. When it took off, 156 people walked off that plane. 150 passengers, four crew persons in terms of stewardesses, and the pilot and the co-pilot. And when he's honored a week later, January the 22nd, 2009, he takes and says, thank you for this honor, but I could not have done it without my co-pilot. And we don't even know his name unless we look it up. Jeff Skiles. Because all Jeff Skiles did was to flip switches. While Sully was guiding the plane, Jeff was flipping switches. And maybe that's what we are called to do. Some of you may work in the cry room. What a ministry. You are wiping the nose and giving little children oatmeal cookies and milk. Maybe the next Lottie Moon, the next Billy Graham, maybe the next Martin Luther King Jr., maybe the next Fanny Burroughs, maybe. And yet, your name may not be mission among the great crowd of people, but remember this, you may not be able to sing like angels, and you may not be able to preach like Paul, but you can tell the love of Jesus and tell them that he died to save us all. If I can help somebody as I travel along, if I can cheer somebody with a word of song, if I can show somebody that he or she is traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. Be satisfied with what God has called you to do. Know your lane. Stay in your lane. Don't have a spirit of contentiousness or conflict. Just thank God that he allowed you to be in his service just one more time. He knew how to play second fiddle. You want to experience the blessedness of secondness. Keep your eyes on the ministry that God has called you to. Keep your eyes on the possession that God has given to you. It was 45 years ago that Caleb saw this hill country, Hebron. And he never took his eyes off of it. Yes, he hasn't seen it for 45 years. Yes, he's wandered in the wilderness after staying at Mount Sinai for two years, 38 years in the wilderness until those unbelieving men, 20 years of age and older, died out in the longest funeral possession in history. Yes, seven years taking control of the land of Canaan. That's 45 years. And now, after 45 years, he sees this land that God had promised and is ready now to possess it. He never stopped looking at what God had promised. Jesus never took his eyes off of his purpose for coming to this earth. Hear him. For this cause was I born. For this reason came I into the world. And when he would come to certain situations and be in certain incidents, he would say, my hour has not come. So he could not die in, of thirst. 
He could not die in being a drowning victim in a boat that was filling up. He could not die in a midnight brawl in Gethsemane. So when they came to get him, he said, finally, my hour has come because this is the hour in which God has foreordained for me to meet. Never take your eyes off of the mission, the premise, uh, the ministry that God has given to you. It's what Joel says in Joel chapter 2 verse 28. The old men shall dream dreams. Old men. The XYZs, the extra years of zest, the senior saints, and here is an octogenarian, 85 years of age, still dreaming, still believing, still forecasting, and not ready to give up on that. Oh, my brothers and sisters, there is blessedness in secondness in that we come to a place that we are not willing to surrender the calling that God has given to us because of the increasing of old age. Now, this is a struggle. I'm 85 years of age, and I'm just as strong as I was 45 years ago. Check that out. I know at 68 what it's like now. I used to hear old people say, you know, I thank God that I could get up in the morning and put one foot before the other. Oh, I laughed at that. That was funny. But I'm telling you, I know what it's like to get out of bed, and now you have to kind of shake yourself and get yourself straight. And before you start walking, you understand what I'm talking about? That's what I'm talking about. But he could only do that because God enabled him to be prepared to accept the challenge that was before him. It was supernatural strength and power that you don't just get naturally, not even through exercise, but through the power of God. So that God equips us for what God has prepared us for. Jesus never talked about retirement. He did say in John 19 and 30, telestai, one Greek word, it is finished. But he never said, I am finished because he's never finished. Do you hear the Hebrew writer saying to us in Hebrews 7, 25, Jesus, our high priest, ever liveth, ever liveth, ever liveth to make intercession for us. So in his mediatorial work, yes, in terms of salvation, that's finished. But in his intercessory work, in terms of praying for us and stepping in between us and what seems to be an impending demise, he does it and he prays for us so that you have a prayer partner in Jesus. Not only do you have a prayer partner in the second person of the Trinity, but you've got a prayer partner in the third person of the Trinity. Romans 8.26 says that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings, with sighs that are too deep for words. So that means that the Son and the Spirit pray to the Father on our behalf. And when your name is not in the bulletin, and that's all right, it's not in the prayer, on the prayer list, it's always on his list. And always know that he is praying for you. Somebody prayed for me, had me on their mind, took the time and prayed for me. No retirement. You, you, you're a Christian. Can I inform you something? You don't have a retirement plan. 
Ah, yeah, from your job, but not from Christianity, not from serving the Lord. Why don't you stop thinking about the rocking chair syndrome? The church is a pitiful church when it sees seniors as being expendable and dispensable. Your greatest ministry might be octogenarian, 80, 85, 90, maybe right now. The psalmist says in Psalms 92 verse 14, in your old age you will bear fruits. It's not time to retire from effective service for the Lord. Be an intercessor. I know a man 92 years of age still sharing in the bus ministry and picking people up. Now, some of you might be a little suspicious about that. I understand that. <laughs> and you might think it's zeal, not according to knowledge. But I love the optimism. And you ought to make up in your mind, yes, I'm 70, yes, I'm 80, yes, I'm 90, but I'm going to serve the Lord if it means to make calls, if it means to send cards, if it means to counsel, if it means to, to pray, if it means to encourage. And here was a man, Caleb, in uh, in his 80s, saying, I'm as strong now as I was 45 years ago. I'm as vigorous for battle now as I was. They now give me this mountain. Uh, he waited 45 years. And to enjoy the blessedness of seconds, one has to reach a point where he or she understands that God's delays are not God's denials. Really, his delays are not his denials. 45 years to wait, that's a long time. But God is not in time. Time is in God. And Jesus himself has delayed his coming now for nearly 2,000 years. Paul thought that Jesus would come in his lifetime. Do you not hear him say in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15 and following, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. But those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the air, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. Paul thought that he would be in the rapture, the second coming of Christ, in terms of being alive, but his time was not God's time. And God delays, as 2 Peter 3 and 9 says, in order that people might be saved. He's not slack concerning his promises, but it is his desire that all persons be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that is, to the place where they repent of their sins. Some of you have been praying for a long time, and I know what it's like to pray according to the will of God, and it doesn't happen. And God keeps delaying, but he's not denying. It must have been tough for Moses. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, the face of God, and God took and blindfolded him with his hand in Exodus chapter 33 and put it in the slit of the rock and let him see his back parts. And God put a restraining order and said, you will not get into the promised land because you didn't glorify me before my people. It took 1,500 years before Moses' desire is finally realized. And Moses stands on one side of Jesus. Elijah stands on the other side. It's been 1,500 years, and Moses now sees what he wanted to see, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Moses is in the promised land, a land that was denied of his interests 1,500 years ago. Can you wait that long? How long can you wait? 1,500 years for Moses. How 
long have you been waiting for healing? How long have you been waiting for reconciliation between your son, your daughter, your husband, your sister? How long have you been waiting for advancement? How long have you been waiting for God to bring order out of chaos? I say to you, Keep trusting, keep waiting, and understand that God's delays are not God's denials. I know what it's like to be a widower, and I know what it's like to wait and uh, wonder when God would ever send me someone in my life to complete me in terms of ministry. And God did. I had no idea that when my first wife was dying on the seventh floor at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, down on the third floor was a young lady by the name of Wanda. She was working in the OBGYN department where life came into the world. My wife, Gail, was dying in the ICU where life was exiting from the world. And she was working, that is, Wanda working on the same day when, Dick, when Gail died. It took a while before I would get to know her. And finally... God brought us together, and we've been together now for 32 years. Why? Because God's delays are not God's denial. If you can just hold out until tomorrow, if you can just keep faith until tonight, if you can just hold out till tomorrow, everything will be all right because weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. There's a word here. There's a word here. He says, give me this hill country. Give me this mountain. It's a word that is slapping uh, the face of a word that I hate. Entitlement. I hate that word. Entitlement. When he said give me this mountain, he didn't mean give it to me freely. He, mean, he meant give me the challenge to take it because that's what he says. I know there are Anakites there, there are giants there, but with the Lord's help, hmm, verse 12, we will take it. We are living in an age in which so many people think that they are entitled. They want freebies. I say to you young people, particularly you who are here, don't allow yourself to be immersed within the stream of that deception. Entitlement. So many young people want the house that has taken their parents 30 years to get. They want it now. They don't want used furniture. They want new furniture now. They don't want to drive a, a, a Chevrolet. They want a Cadillac now. They want a Mercedes now. They may even want a Bentley now. They don't want to go up the steps. They want to go up the elevator. I want to tell you, you are not entitled. What you need to do is to say, God, give me the strength to take my dream and my vision and to assume and to realize it and to do it for the glory of God. We are not entitled. The only thing we're entitled for is a destination to hell. Oh, that's so harsh, Robert Smith. But it's true. We are sinners. We don't deserve anything from God. Whatever we get from God, we get it by grace. And if you earn it, it ain't grace. I know how to say it is not grace. It ain't grace. And mama said grace is getting something from God for nothing. So we rise our way up and we move away from this entitlement. Give me the challenge. And with God's help, I will ascend the mountain and with the power of God, I will defeat the giants. 
Caleb has been promised in verse 10 and verse 12 by God that he will not die until he inherits the promised possession. That's why he says in verse 10, as God promised, I've been kept alive for these 45 years. Say the same thing in verse 12. Verse number 9, Moses, based upon what God had said, swore that Caleb would get this promise. And what did it take place? In Numbers 14 and 24, where God said to Moses about Caleb, Caleb has a different spirit, and he has served me wholeheartedly. Therefore, I'm going to bring him into this land, and his descendants will have this piece of territory, namely Hebron. God kept Caleb alive for 45 years because God's word is true. I believe, I believe that you and I are immortal until God is finished with us. When I say immortal, we can't die when we're in God's will until God has accomplished his purpose in our lives. That may be at 85, it may be at 25, it may be at 5. I don't understand that. But I do know that we can live courageously knowing that we are under divine protective custody and we can trust that God will keep us. No wonder Simeon in Luke 2.26 could hold the baby Jesus that was presented to him by Mary and Joseph and says, Lord, dismiss thy servant from your sight because I've seen your salvation, which you promised to be a light to all the nations. You told me that I wouldn't die until I saw Jesus. Mm. No wonder Paul would have a visitor at night while he was on the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea sailing and the angel would speak to him and Paul would report to the other 275 passengers on that boat that a visitor came by tonight and told me that I must get to Rome, not as a political prisoner before uh, the king, but as a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to represent him in imperial Rome. So take and gird up your loins and live freely. Live with excitement and live with courage knowing that until God's through with you, you are immortal and God will fulfill his purpose in your life. Uh, there is an inheritance that is promised to Caleb. You see that here. It's in verse 9 and it's verse 13. An inheritance. And the inheritance is this land, Hebron, that is infested with giants. And Caleb wants that. Nothing easy, but he wants that. That's his inheritance. It's so much his inheritance that it becomes a legacy that he can leave to his descendants. If you check it out in chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, just one chapter over, you will see that Caleb's daughter, Aksa, comes to him and says, Daddy, you've given us the land. I'm married now, but we need some springs of water in order for the land to be irrigated and for the crop to grow. And Caleb gives Aksa and her husband uh, the upper and the lower springs as an inheritance, as a legacy, something that could be passed on even after he died. We must look beyond ourselves to an inheritance that we can transfer. And I'm not talking about material stuff. I'm talking about an inheritance that has eternal ramifications. That 
gets within the fiber and the being of people that we can put in our children so that even when they get out of the way of the word, they can never get the word of the way out of them. And they become a pot like a prodigal son and a prodigal daughter. And because that word is in them, they find themselves gravitating back toward the father's house. It's an inheritance. Oh, I'm grateful for inheritance. An inheritance came into this world 2,000 years ago. In flesh and blood and spirit, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the parable of God. Jesus, the human face of God, came into the world to give us himself. That's my inheritance. You can take away my position as Charles T. Carter, a professor of preaching of the divinity school. Doesn't matter. Take away the house. Take away the title. Doesn't matter. But I have an inheritance that cannot be garnished, an inheritance that cannot be stripped away. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ. The solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. His hope is covered in his blood. Protect me in this whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay on Christ. The solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And this Jesus left us when he went to heaven an inheritance. Hmm, the Spirit. As Paul was saying in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as an earnest, as a down payment that seals us until the day of redemption. And we will have a land, not in Canaan, milk and honey flow, that's wonderful. No, but we will have a land, a land where we'll never grow old, a land where there will no longer be war, land, where there will no longer be conflict. I say to you, brother and sister, your inheritance is Christ. And if this world, if this nation is going to ever be salvaged and saved, it will not be by the world. It will be by the church. Make sure that your eyes are fixed not on government, but on God. Not ultimately on the White House, but on the right house. Am I discounting that? No. I just want you to understand that government is fickle and human beings like all of us change. But Christ will never change. Make sure you keep your eyes not on the Bill of Rights, which I believe in, but on the Bible. Make sure you keep your eyes not so much on Capitol Hill, though we pray and love our government and we pray for our leaders but keep your eyes fixed on a hill far away where the cross stood, where Jesus died. And when we stand before him, no, when we bow before him, we will recognize the blessedness of secondness. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels, that's our place, prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. Come on, Brother Jack. And crown him. Crown him. Crown him, Lord of all.